has been a long time since we did an emergency podcast. And I'm I'm a little worried that I am making an emergency out of not an emergency. But something struck me last week as the annual meetings for the World Bank and the IMF are coming up. And this is about a rather obscure case involving Sri Lanka that has received very little attention. But I think the implications here are big. And this goes back to a couple of blog posts that Mark wrote. I, I, in theory, I'm a co-author on those blog posts. Uh, but when I went back and looked at them, that came as a surprise to me and uh, because all of the credit for them has to go to Mark. And I think our friends at the IMF must have somehow understood this because they cite to this in one of their reports and they only cite Mark as an author and they are absolutely correct since I can't even remember it. But I think the implications are really big and worth talking about. But given that Mark is the expert as designated by the IMF, I want to begin, uh, let's start with the case in which this comes up, the Hamilton Bank versus Republic of Sri Lanka case. And Mark, can you set it up in terms of what this case started out being about? And then maybe we can get to what I think is the emergency, and you can tell me there's no emergency, but we'll ask Liana to post the podcast anyway? (laughs) Um, I'm definitely not the expert, but I think I have a slightly better recollection of this than you do, because what I remember is that you posted something which I thought was wrong. And then I posted something and that's the, so you are not actually not even nominally a co-author on that post because the whole point of it was to explain why I thought you were wrong about something. This is my recollection. Oh, and the, that and the, is, uh, you're undoubtedly right, because I, I might be wrong again. I don't think you're wrong again. I think the interesting thing, so this the topic relates to something that we've talked about before on a podcast with my colleague, our friend Andy Hessek, about the ability of a creditor who gets a judgment to escape the effect of a debt restructuring. And I was saying in the blog post you referenced that to me, that ability is undoubted, that a judgment holder clearly does escape the restructuring, although there might be some some ways to uh, to deal with them anyway. But to set it up, the the issue that uh, I wouldn't say it's an emergency, but it's important and interesting. And I'm surprised to be talking about it in the context of Sri Lanka. I think we had originally been thinking about it in the context of Venezuela. And maybe maybe now that uh, the statute of limitations is about to lapse for a lot of Venezuelan claims, maybe we can think about it there too. But the, the issue has to do with when it makes sense for a creditor to rush to get a judgment. And there are pros and there are cons to that strategy. 
But we started thinking about this because we saw this weird lawsuit by an entity called Hamilton Bank, which neither of us, I don't think, had ever heard of, although that's that's no surprise. You know, they can create some random entity and house it somewhere secretive uh, to hold your investment. But they sued Sri Lanka quite early on after it had been announced that the Sri Lankan government wanted to treat some domestic creditors better than foreign creditors. And in their initial complaint, they had asked for parepasu relief and an injunction against uh, the granting more favorable treatment to domestic creditors. And we've talked about this lawsuit before on this podcast, where basically we sat around and we scratched our heads and we said, huh, this makes no sense. So I think we're what we're going to start by talking about today is whether we've gotten a better sense of what the hell is going on in that lawsuit. How's that? That's great. I, I love that setup because I I am interested in all things Paripasu. And I worry constantly that Paripasu is dead. And there are lawsuits like this Hamilton Bank that then resuscitate Paripasu. And I throw a little party just for myself because nobody I know is willing to listen to anything about Paripasu anymore after years of torture. But here we had this lawsuit that brings this Paripasu claim and says Paripasu is no longer dead. And then they dropped the Paripasu claim. So it's weird what, why they brought the Paripasu claim. I think it was before the bonds even matured. The, the, the suit might, might have been premature. And then they modify the complaint. And what was interesting to me so they they modify the complaint after the bond matures and they they're clearly owed the money and they continue with the complaint which is uh, puzzling to me because once you get a judgment then you get paid at a sort of at a lower interest rate i'm oversimplifying and we have talked about we talked about this in that podcast with andy hessek so one might ask, well, why are you bringing this case so early in the game when the restructuring is still going on? You'll get a judgment and then your claim will be worth less than everybody else's. But then I was doubly puzzled because Clifford Chance representing Sri Lanka mounts this defense against the claim and is really struck me as quite bizarre. It, it was a version of a defense that we saw a long time ago in uh, a case called Appelstein involving Argentina. But Argentina was willing to throw all sorts of loony things at the wall, uh, anything to disrupt the creditors. And I had always thought, you know, uh, like a reputable debtor that's actually trying to please the creditors, they're not going to engage in loony bin arguments. And yet uh, Sri Lanka uh, does this. So I thought, you know, that was the interesting part of this. Uh, but then the, then the question is, well, why is Hamilton Bank continuing to do this when it's going to get a lower rate of interest? And so the answer there 
I thought was Hamilton Bank is just like they don't know what they're doing. They're they're just clueless. Until I went back and reread your piece, and I thought, oh my goodness, they're it's not that they're clueless. They understand the effect of getting a judgment. And Sri Lanka understands the effect of them getting a judgment. And that's why they're fighting so hard to delay them from getting a judgment. So I I don't, that's what I want to ask you, whether or not I'm on the right track, that this is uh, actually a smart creditor recognizing the value of getting a judgment and because judgments actually take some time to get, they started really early. And they first started with this Paripasu claim that was not so good, but they were in court. And then they amended their complaint as soon as they could, as soon as the bond matured. And uh, now they're over the motion to dismiss. And now they last for a judgment. And if they get a judgment, they're home free because now they can't be restructured. And that's that's huge. And they have taken advantage of the incredibly slow and delayed restructuring process that Sri Lanka has had. And the implications of having slow and delayed restructuring process now should manifest to ourselves because it allows creditors to get the judgments. Am I making a mountain out of a molehill, Mark? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think the jury is sort of, so first of all, they there's still a lot of optionality for them, right? The lawsuit has not yet produced a judgment. And so in some ways, one thing that adds to the confusion here is the depths of a haircut that Sri Lanka's external bondholders are going to be asked to take is still somewhat up in the air and you know by some accounts does not need to be particularly deep um so it's a little bit weird because you as you point out the the question turns on how long it's going to take to enforce the judgment you know if you think all right I, so their claim is about a quarter million dollars i'm just basing that on the a quarter billion dollars i'm just basing that on the complaint which looks like they have just enough to prevent the CAC from triggering, uh, assuming I have that right. Although we can, we can come back and talk about the whether that fact should make us think differently about what they're doing here. But you know, if you think, okay, I'm going to opt out of the restructuring. I'll have my quarter billion dollar claim, and then they'll just pay me in full to keep me from being a pain in the ass. Then it kind of makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, if it's going to take five or 10 years to get paid on your judgment, then that low rate of post-judgment interest is really going to bite. And, you know, you're going to wind up giving them debt relief anyway, right? You're basically giving them a, you know, extension right now. And the extension under the bonds is basically at the coupon rate, I think. But once you get your judgment, the extension is going to be at the federal funds rate. And Presumably, nobody wants to lend to Sri Lanka at the Fed funds rate. So um, if you got to do that for a long time, it doesn't look so smart. So I don't know. We'll see. Maybe we should do this in some sequence, um, kind of starting from the beginning of the case, because a lot did go on. And I thought initially 
the Perry Passu claim maybe was dropped in an attempt to speed things along, either to limit the amount of discovery that uh, Sri Lanka might be able to ask for. Um, so they reframe the complaint just seeking money damages. And then this argument gets made by Sri Lanka about them basically not being uh, entitled to sue. Can you let's talk about that a little bit because that argument shocked me. I had frankly, I had never even considered it before. And when it when Clifford Chance made it, I was like, my God, if that's right, I've been thinking about everything wrong and I don't understand the way anything works in this in this um. Uh, in this market. So let's talk about that argument first, maybe, and then go from there. Okay. So I, I like this. We let, let's, the, the systematic approach is good because I find so much of this confusing. So as I understand the argument that Clifford Chance and Sri Lanka make, uh, they find this language in the Sri Lankan contract must have uh, taken some digging because they it, they go into the indenture and you know just getting the indenture is such a pain, but they find language in there that says that the rights to sue essentially go to the registered holder of the bonds and holder is defined as essentially the intermediary. Uh, I think it's uh, DTE or depository trust. uh, And then a depository trust has seed and company as basically it's uh, it's subsidiary or agent who's, who's doing whatever. Now, this is a little bit bizarre because the intermediary is never going to want to sue that they're not the people getting the recovery on the bonds and they're not the agent to sue for this. So to have them have all the rights to sue, it strikes me as utterly loony. But that is kind of what the contract says, not kind of, it is what the contract says. And in addition, the the Sri Lankan contract says that Sri Lanka waives its uh, sovereign immunity only vis-a-vis these holders, meaning the intermediary. And that struck me as uh, having significant implications because Sri Lanka then should be able to raise sovereign immunity against anybody else. So Clifford Chance says these people are not entitled to sue. And uh, Hamilton Bank even gets a letter from Seed and Company saying, you, Hamilton Bank, that that bought the bonds and owns the bonds and wants to get its money back, uh, we authorize you to sue. And Sri Lanka says, well, but the contract doesn't allow you to. And on its face, they have a pretty good argument. The contract doesn't allow you to. So now, ultimately, this is loony uh, to be in the situation since it really just is denying the investors the right to sue on an instrument that has been defaulted on. And it surprises me that any debtor would make this argument. uh, But that's the argument. And it seems uh, from my talking to lawyers who have been around a long time, that this is just a glitch in the contract. And it came up 
in the Appelstein case involving the province of Buenos Aires almost 20 years ago now, and the Argentine contracts did get fixed in the Argentine restructuring of 2005, or at least their their exchange offer that did not succeed in restructuring all of their bonds. Uh, But investors then were so irate that they had those contracts fixed. But apparently Sri Lanka uh, didn't get the memo. And so this bond that is issued in 2012 or 2013 doesn't fix this problem and it's raised. So that itself would have been worthy of us having a podcast because, of course, we're clauses and controversies, and this is kind of a, a really bizarre contract provision. Uh, but that that that's, I, I mean, I thought that was the most interesting part, but uh, that's how I would set it up. But am I, did I get it kind of right? I, I mean, I think so, but I, I still find it so perplexing because it, it, it just, the, the argument, even though it seems to have some reasonable even strong foundation in the contract. It just didn't, didn't make any sense to me. Like uh, I understand the centralization of litigation power in the trustees' hands in a lot of scenarios, but even uh, even uh, that wouldn't um, normally be the case here when the, you've got a bond that's post-maturity and the investor is now suing for the the unpaid principal. So, and it makes no sense at all to say that the only the registered holder, but not the beneficial holder, is entitled to sue. I, th- that just that sort of blew my mind. I think the takeaway, though, I think, is that there's an an easy workaround, right? Because didn't the the authorization from CD and Co suffice to let them go ahead? Well, so. I... The court gives uh, the Sri Lankan argument the back of the hand. They they're like, this is just this is just stupid. You, the bondholder can always sue with the with the proper authorization, but they ignore the contract language, which is not at all so clear. The court just says, as a matter of New York law, you always get to sue. But uh, New York contract law is a pretty strict. B New York contract law is really just a set of default rules that the parties should be able to contract around. I think the court realized this is just a Hail Mary defense. They're just trying to delay their argument that this was intentionally put in place to, uh, as part of the whole uh, um, collective action clause apparatus. They literally make that argument that this is part of the, apparatus to make sure there's not disruptive litigation by assigning the right to to, to sue to someone who will never exercise it <laughs> yeah they, they, I, th- I mean unless i'm delusional and not remembering they literally make that argument and if you didn't know anything about the history of collective action clauses and how these clauses were designed it has a facial plausibility because if you believe Sri Lanka's argument that this is what it was designed, I mean, it is working out that way. It is making it impossible to sue. And so it does allow uh, the restructuring to go forward because, you know, you can't have disruptive creditor litigation. But uh, I mean, it, it this there there isn't, I, I, I don't think there's any real world support 
for for this and if you put the 12 bishops on the stand here the 12 most eminent sovereign debt lawyers i am willing to wager they would all laugh in our faces they'd be like this this is just a glitch in the contract uh, but the court just gives the argument at the back of the hand and the the implications here and i thought this is what we would do a podcast about although it wouldn't have been an emergency the implications here are fairly significant for all the other contracts and i pulled at least 10 indentures and i found that in 8 of the 10 the exceptions were ecuador and argentina in 8 of the 10 it had sri lanka type language and, and just just so we're clear the language so there's a there's um it's pretty standard to waive sovereign immunity and to consent to suits by holders. So the language we're talking about is language that defines holder as the registered owner, but not the beneficial owner. Is that the the wonky language that got fixed by Argentina and Ecuador, or is it something else? The language that gets fixed by Ecuador and Argentina is it says that the beneficial owner can sue under, under certain conditions, either with a letter or... I just they can sue when there's so it doesn't change the definition of holder it just makes clear like we're not saying the stupid thing that we might be taken to say um bingo that's exactly right so it does get fixed there it doesn't get fixed in the elegant way that you had asked me whether it got fixed it got fixed in the way in which Uh, these contracts are usually fixed is you don't actually fix the thing that is wrong. You just add in some more confusing language. Right. Although, I mean, I threw that out, but I, I assume a lawyer who drafts these contracts would probably point to all kinds of problems that you'd get if you defined the term holder for all purposes to include beneficial owners, but maybe not. Anyway, the, the, so the issue is sort of live, but maybe not worth taking seriously as a, as a genuine risk, which implies that Clifford Chance's strategy here was just desperately buying time for their client. Is that, do I have that about right? That is, once you realize that they must have known, and there's a whole set, apparently this argument keeps getting made in New York at the district court level, and it keeps getting rejected by the New York courts. Uh, So, Sri Lanka's lawyers must have known we're going to get the back of the hand to this argument, but it's going to buy us time. So then the question is, why did they need to buy time? Why are you spending lawyer time and resources? Why not just throw up your hands and say, yeah, we didn't pay you. You're entitled to a judgment. And then you get a lower interest rate. So, I mean, one argument would be this is kind of bizarre because the longer you delay, uh, Hamilton Bank gets the higher rate of interest. So we have to ask the question, why were they fighting about this? Why was Sri Lanka trying to delay? And it has to be, to my mind, that they are trying to delay this creditor from getting a judgment. And in part, I think, and I am prone to conspiracy theories, is they've got to be thinking other other creditors are also going to realize the value of getting a judgment because that means I cannot be restructured. And in fact, Mark, and I'm not sure of this, but I remember hearing this 
at an IMF meeting uh, a long time ago where one of the civil procedure experts said, if you get a judgment, judgments are effectively pari passu. So you can't, you can't pay the others on a non-rata base, non-pro-rata basis. Wait, what? Yeah. Um, so like the pari passu contract claim, you get it if you have a judgment against everybody else. So that that came out in Argentina. It's true that the the pari passu right survived the maturity and termination of the contract. So that oh, even I mean something judgment. different, uh, which I you you should tell me if I'm completely wrong. Is that you know if if I have a judgment or and I'm not sure whether it's vis-a-vis everybody else who has a judgment or if I have a judgment and you owe me money. You can't be paying other people. No, that's just wrong. Okay. All right. Maybe there's some corner of the world where it's true, but no, of course not. So I can pay other people and sure. it's totally fine. Of course. I- In fact, the whole point of getting a judgment is to be first to attach on an asset, in which case you are explicitly not pari passu. You then have a property interest in the asset and you are paid a hundred cents on the dollar before the next person in line for that asset gets paid anything. Okay, that makes sense. Um, but or, so the, the, the point, though, was that the pari passu rights did extend. It, it would make sense to say that the pari passu rights extend, uh, depending on what the contract says, to judgment holders, so that someone who has reduced their claim to judgment could nevertheless seek an injunction under the pari passu clause in their contract to forbid differential payments. Depends on what the pari passu clause says and how it's drafted, but that was definitely an issue that came up um, in the Argentine you know, post-2001 cases. So that that in that sense, um, getting a judgment does not necessarily eliminate your pari passu rights. Okay, so now we get to the heart of the matter, which is, what is the reason Hamilton Bank wanted this judgment? And presumably, the, the way the case stands now, Clifford, Chance, and Sri Lanka have lost on the motion to dismiss. Do they now get to file for summary judgment and ask for, they're like, you know, you owe us money, you didn't pay us the money? judgment for the plaintiff? I mean, that seems pretty simple. Isn't this QED? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it'll still take a number of months, but in some ways, I wonder if this was why, or one reason why they dropped the Perry Passu claim, which was, it always struck me as a loser of a claim anyway, but there, I know there were some, I need to go back and pull these from the docket. There were some, um, there was a back and forth between Sri Lanka and Hamilton Bank about the need for discovery, which is bad for for Hamilton Bank, right? If you, it's hard to imagine what discovery Sri Lanka would really need. But um, you, if Sri Lanka can come up with an argument that it needs some, that would be a delaying tactic here. And so I wonder if the Pari Passu claim maybe gave them a, a slightly better discovery hook. Because now, unless Sri Lanka can convince the judge that there needs to be some discovery in this bog standard bond dispute where it's 
acknowledge that they haven't paid, then yeah, the next thing that has to happen is there'll be a briefing schedule for summary judgment. And if there's a briefing schedule, like what will Sri Lanka say? I mean, what what argument could they possibly have? That, <laughs> I, <don't> <laughs> I mean, the judge is going to ask, did you borrow the money? And they're going to say, yes. Yeah. Did you did you pay it? Correct. On time? And they're going to say, no. <laughs> uh, I, often, I think these things are not contested. They're separate, like what the judge sort of expects, although maybe the early cases actually do go to judgment, the early cases in any sovereign debt crisis, but certainly at a certain point, and maybe we're already at that point, the judge is going to say, look, look, get together, agree on the amount. But like, unless you can tell me credibly that you have a legal argument or a factual argument against the entry of judgment here, like, don't waste our time. So, you know, I have to imagine that Sri Lanka is worried about that. Like, there's going to be a scheduling conference and the judge is going to be like, what's next? And do we really need briefing? And, you know, we got to have an answer to that question. Okay. So now this is the reason that I think we should be, we should all be worried if we think about sovereign debt restructuring. It is that even if this takes another couple of months, as I understand what's going on in the Sri Lankan restructuring talks with all of the delays and all of the drama over China and all, you know, all of the stuff that's been going on, they're not going to have a restructuring in place before Hamilton Bank gets the judgment. And that means Hamilton Bank is has escaped the restructuring. It also means, I assume, that that bond issue in which Hamilton Bank is that now has a lot fewer participants in it. So that all of a sudden becomes harder to restructure. Now, this would have been even more of an interesting story if this bond had had the aggregative, aggregated collective action clauses. I don't think it did. I think it just had you know first-generation collective action clauses. But the strategy of Hamilton Bank of getting the judge rushing to the courthouse to get the judgment early as a way of making their claim restructuring proof is one that is going to be copied if people realize it in every other restructuring and all of them are mired in quicksand right now. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, so it doesn't really help if everyone does it. Right. Then you get at the end of the day, everyone is uh, sort of on equal footing and you have chaos because there's no collective means for um, for restructuring the judgments. So, you know, but this is the perfect situation. Yes. When you have like just one credit job. That's right. And others have no clue. And they're just like, oh, I mean, I had uh, one of our friends in the market emailed me and said, Oh, does Hamilton Bank have a you know have a good claim? And I'm like, the bonds matured, they didn't get paid. I don't really understand the question. I mean, <laughs> that's as good of a claim as you get. There's no the fact that Sri Lanka is defending against it doesn't mean that they have a prayer of a defense. Right. And they don't here. Um so I guess the 
I'm trying to figure out what the specific problem is that has you worried. So if it's just that in every restructuring that we can anticipate over the next few years, there might be one or two creditors who opts themselves out by jumping the litigation gun and who winds up getting paid in full. I'm not, like, that's not a great outcome, but I'm not hugely worried about it. I'm much more worried about it in the context of something like Venezuela, where now because of the imminent running of the statute of limitations, which, you know, maybe they, they're going to find a way to fix, but you could get a situation where you have a very, very sizable chunk of the debt, a, a, a part of the debt that you just cannot afford to pay in full under any circumstances that now is represents represented by judgment holders and you've got no collective means of dealing with those people you just have yet another bilateral restructuring negotiation you need to go through so that to me seems like utter chaos this situation with sri lanka seems like a bit of unfairness there are real world consequences to it somebody is going to have to you know if hamilton bank does wind up getting paid more that's coming out of somebody's pocket. But, you know, is it really that different from things that we've seen in the past where the if they wind up being the smart money, they get paid a little bit more? It doesn't seem like this threat, certainly it's not what's holding up the Sri Lankan restructuring. If it's only Hamilton Bank and, you know, they own, you know, a quarter of this bond issue and they get paid in full because they were the smarter money. No big deal. But if now it ends up being, you know, 10, 20% of the private debt stock in every restructuring that rushes to get the judgment, then I think it it, it is chaos and it completely undermines the whole, I mean, the collective action clauses no longer work. If everybody gets it, then we are left with, the situation where we can't do the restructurings. And now I think we were not so worried about this kind of situation, although rereading your blog post and rereading the IMF report where they talk about what you say in your blog post, and I will no no longer say that it was mine because mine was the wrong one that you were responding to. uh, They were worried too. It's just... The market seemed to think, ah, no big deal. Restructurings will happen fast. But now we know that thanks to these geopolitical tensions in every one of the restructurings we have seen post-COVID, these things are taking years to even get on the table, which means there's enough time to get judgments. And, you know, creditors, the non-Elliot creditors of the world are slow, but when they see themselves getting, you know, 50% less than some random bank in the Cayman Islands, is it in the Cayman Islands? I can't remember. It's somewhere like that, that, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, that's kind of embarrassing that Hamilton Bank, who nobody even knows, is, is gonna get a much bigger chunk of change than they are. I mean, that might that might still not happen. You know, maybe Sri Lanka's lawyers will come up with some rabbit in the hat. Uh, but right now, I, 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 
it feels like they're just ahead of the game. But but that so, that, that leads me to a question that I had for you. And um, alas, this will this will reflect yet more of my utter lack of understanding of basic topics in law. But cannot uh, Sri Lanka say that Hamilton Bank is behaving badly by trying to to escape the collective action clauses and or escape uh, exit consents? and therefore violating some kind of good faith and fair dealing uh, duty is there anything are there any uh, is there anything I, they can say i mean i don't i don't like duty, so right i don't like the duty of good faith and fair dealing stuff here in part cuz it seems weird to me i know i know you have you've thought about this more than i have and you have more of an interest in using the duty of good faith here, but I'm just sort of uncomfortable saying that exercising contractual rights to enforce a contract that has indisputably been breached is somehow a violation of the duty of good faith and fair dealing because it would be nice if everyone acted in a sort of collectively beneficial fashion, even though the contract doesn't require it. That just strikes me as weird. But there are there are two things here that I was going to sort of raise to you that I think are are responsive to your question, which is that, you know, if you imagine five or ten creditors, you know, a bunch of creditors uh, attempting this strategy, one of the things that we've seen, at least in New York, is that the the judges in the Southern District have been pretty accommodating when countries come forward and say, look, we're in the middle of restructuring negotiations, and these lawsuits are throwing a significant wrench in the works. And one of the ways they've been accommodating is just by putting the cases on hold for a while, slow walking them when they're not formally stayed, but even formally staying them for a bit. So, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if this got if there was a genuine sense that this was becoming a real problem, if judges in the Southern District and perhaps in London as well, although I know that I know those court procedures much less, would find a way to um, make creditors cool their heels. They couldn't do it infinitely, you know. Eventually, you've got to let them get their judgments, but they would um, they would take time, and that might be a informal but perfectly adequate solution to the problem. The other thing I just want to point out is you 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 alluded to it when you talked about Hamilton Bank maybe trying to escape not just the CAC but exit consent. If it's really true that they have a quarter billion of a $1 billion bond, then there's there's no aggregation feature in this bond. It's a 75% vote to change or reserved matter, but only a 66 and two thirds percent vote to change non-reserved matters. And it's got a pretty long reserved matter list, but you know, you could use the exit consent to hurt them. And you know, maybe the most obvious way to do that, and me too, this I want to hear your your reaction to, uh, is to, you know, you try to do something fairly aggressive, like add a sharing clause to the bond. Uh, you could, could you do that uh, using exit amendments? Because um, it's certainly not forbidden by one, it's not defined as a reserve matter anyway. It's not, it's never been tried. It's never been tried. And I have often wondered about it. Uh, but, you know, the, 
that's a really that that would take a lot of strategizing it would be very innovative it would be kind of a scorched earth policy that the creditors would be i mean we talked about the beneficial owner versus a registered holder thing that surely annoys creditors but this would really uh, piss them off but it, it it could it could be tried i mean adding a clause has always been something in the exit consent context that has struck me as a little bit more dubious than deleting clauses but logically why not unless you have a prohibition on it why can't you do it but uh but i again i think the fact that they they're despite us having put in place all these collective action clauses and all these mechanisms to make this stuff work we're now having to go back to exit consents, which was a technique that had to be used because we didn't have <laughs> collective action clauses. I mean, that's really pathetic. And now uh, I don't I don't know if you remember when you did that blog post and when that IMF report was, but we've had a lot of years to fix this damn thing and we haven't done it. I just so, looked, it was February 12th, 2020. Yeah. So that, more than three years. Yeah, but, that's a lot of time when where basically the legal department of the IMF is saying mark is right we need to worry about this and we haven't worried about it and i bet i am willing to bet anything that the sri lankan lawyers they understand the implications here and they are they are doing exactly what you're you're you are suggesting in that they're thinking about strategies but this is i mean if you're sri lanka this is this is not the situation. This is not the orderly restructuring situation you want. You wanted this to be over last year. Yeah. And, you know, I guess maybe the, you know, the, the immediate strategy is you kind of throw yourself on the judge's mercy and say, we're like, we finally got uh, some momentum going in the restructuring process. And these guys are trying to muck it up and they're trying to get a better deal for themselves. And so make them wait another, you know, X months before, uh, before we have this, another conversation about the summary judgment motion. And, you know, maybe the judge will buy that. Who knows? My the other thing is, you know, you have a, presumably there'll be, there might be some most favored creditor kind of provision granted in the restructuring, perhaps. And so maybe that has the effect of delaying any ultimate settlement for Hamilton Bank. And maybe the returns on this strategy wind up being really crappy because the of the low rate of post-judgment interest. Who knows? Yeah. I mean it is possible, but they're they're they are taking they're they're engaging in a risky strategy. I mean that's what these kinds of investors do. And right now it looks like they're on their way to getting a nice recovery. But uh, I promise this is the last question because we like to keep these emergency podcasts short, even if it's not quite as much of an emergency. But although I think now now you have convinced me (laughs) that it it is. Uh, But can a judge uh, slow walk if the creditor says, I'm entitled to a judgment. Isn't that something that 
you could appeal as a abuse of discretion. They, they, I mean, can they actually? I mean, I realize that they do this in the real world, but isn't that because creditors or the plaintiffs don't complain about it because there's no basis to just delay so that the other side has rights that it doesn't is not entitled to. Sure, there is. I mean, the judge has all kinds of power to control her calendar and. There would be no right to appeal anyway. I mean, you could try to mandamus her, but it would take forever, which would accomplish the same thing. Um, but no, they, they did this in the context of Argentina. They're in the context of a debt restructuring out of deference to a foreign state that's a defendant. There's no question a judge could not permanently, but easily find a way to put the process on hold uh, so that it wouldn't interfere with an ongoing uh, restructuring. So I don't have any doubt that a judge could do that and would not be, it could not be meaningfully challenged for doing it. Now, whether they will or not, you know, who knows? It's at a certain point, courts have to do what courts do rather than try to facilitate restructurings. They have to enter judgments, but they definitely have the discretion to take their time in getting there, especially in this context. Well, thank you so much for indulging me. I so thoroughly enjoy our podcast when it's just the two of us, even though I love every one of our guests. And this strikes me as really important and urgent for us to deal with. So I enjoy them too. And I, you've, you've convinced me uh, that it is, if not um, if not urgent, it was worth a unscheduled podcast.